Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Praise the Lord. Okay, all right, Song of Solomon. The amazing book of Song of Solomon, chapter 7 today. And it's been a wonderful journey through this incredible book, a unique book, a book like no other, about a love like no other. Uh, Well, uh, when you look back to your honeymoon, those of you that have had a honeymoon, um, I wonder what kind of thoughts you might have. But the actual word honeymoon has a fascinating history. The word was associated with a, with a European custom where couples would drink a daily cup of honeyed wine called mead for the first month, moon. So you would drink that honey for the moon period. Um, what it was symbolizing, of course, is that the early part of the marriage is sweet, everything's great, before all the pain that comes later on. Um, so after, yeah, after one month, they, no honey, apparently. <laughs> but but <clears throat> here's the question this morning. Is this how God designed things to work? Is this how God wants it to work? Uh, a honeymoon. You have a short period of greatness and sweetness and wonderful time together, and the rest is just pain. Is this, is this the way God intended it? Does romance have to disappear uh, after the honeymoon? I think the clear answer from Scripture is absolutely not. The biblical idea, very clearly, as you read through Scripture about marriage, is that it should get better as the years go on. Matter of fact, I think that's the main theme that arises from this chapter that we're going to look at today. Just as a reminder for everybody, there is no expiration date on God's commands to husbands and wives. There is no, exp- it doesn't say, okay, you, husbands, you treat your wives like this until they do this. Wives, you treat your husbands like this until they do this. You don't see that all the way through. But having said that, we know, uh, anybody who's been married for a, a little while will know that th- things do change over the years. They, they're not the same as they were the day or the, even the month <laughs> that you got married. Um, The type of romance back then, we're going to really talk about romance today, but the type of romance that you see in the infatuation stage, if you want to call it, the early stages of a relationship, are what what I might call instinctive romance. Instinctively, you can't stop thinking about each other. Uh, Instinctively, you can't keep your hands off each other. But as the years go on, you begin to know each other, K-N-O-W, know each other. You've been through battles together. You've seen for better or for worse. You've developed some wrinkles together. And this is when infatuation begins to turn to something different that I think we might call appreciation. Instead of infatuation, it really turns to a deep appreciation for your spouse. And then the couple's romance turns into something that looks a little different. But it's deeper. It's more meaningful. We might call that, and I'll call that, a deepening romance. And that's our theme today. 
God wants us as married couples throughout the years to have a deepening and ever-deepening romance, I think. Romance and intimacy doesn't disappear. God doesn't want it to disappear. I think it should just keep going deeper and deeper. Today, we're going we're gonna to read about <clears throat> a more mature Solomon and a more mature Shul- Shulamite woman, his wife, as they partake in another time of marital intimacy. And we'll see things that are similar to their wedding night that was back in chapter 4, but what we also see in this is something more intimate. They're more comfortable with each other. Now, we don't know exactly know how old they are now at this point, uh, but we remember that the last time we talked, last week we talked about the conflict in marriage, and that seems to have taken place several years into the marriage, and so we're definitely, I think, some years into this thing. And again, as we get, get ready to launch into this, as I mentioned, this because chapter 7 is, in many ways, very graphic. I mean, it's, it's like the wedding night, but it's more intimate in many ways. And uh, let me just remind us, because <laughs> we might think the question, why does God put l- stuff like this in the Bible that we're about to read? Well, you know, I sometimes think about somebody just picking up the Bible somewhere, you know, and they never read it before, and they just happen to open the Song of Solomon and read something like this, and, and, and you know, have to check, is this really the Bible? <laughs> is, is, this, is this what I'm thinking it is? Because when you read this, this is what do you think? Is this, is this really what God is saying? But it is. And let me just remind everybody, God puts this here on purpose, and by doing that, it reminds us that sexuality is something that he designed. And it's healthy and a holy thing when done according to his design. Romance is beautiful. Romance is what God wants, and he designed it. As long as it's done to his design, it is a beautiful thing. It has so much potential for good. But with that potential for good, it does truly have so much potential for for hurt and pain. But it also tells us this, when I see a chapter like this, that God doesn't want any marriage partner starving for intimacy. God doesn't want that. He wants both to be fulfilled and satisfied in their marriage. So, what from this passage and from other passages, what does God-approved romance look like after years of marriage? That's basically what we're going to see here. And I think... We're going to see that it's a husband who is expressive, thoughtful, affectionate. We're going to see a wife who is responsive, aggressive, creative. And we're going to see then a marriage that deepens in security and excitement and intimacy. Okay? All right. Remember, God presents us with the ideal here. As we read this, it's what we should be aiming for as married couples. He has these snapshots for us to help us. Here's what you're aiming for. Here's what you're going for. It may not be like this 24-7, but if both people are aiming this way, you're going to see it. And what we're going to see at the beginning of this chapter is another description then of the husband giving, he's giving a description of his wife's body. But this time, instead of, as he did before, going from head to toe, he's now going to go the other direction, from foot to face, okay? Uh, W.A. Criswell, the first Baptist pastor for 55 years, uh, just a blessed man, he's in heaven now, but he said this about this passage In verses 1 through 9, he said, It is the third detailed description by Solomon of the physical beauty of his wife. This section reveals a growth and maturity in their relationship. The metaphors are more vivid and intimate than the previous ones, an increase in freedom in both sexual matters and communication. uh, An increase in freedom in both sexual matters and communication is expected in a healthy marriage. 
So that was his quote, and I, I like that. So at the end of chapter 6, we ended with a reference to a dance. And then now, chapter 7, here's what we see in verse 1. Solomon, the, the husband, speaking to his wife. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter. The joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Regal is the common word, Hebrew word for feet. However, that's not the word that Solomon uses here. He uses the word pa'am, and that actually is the stroke or the beat of feet. And so, because of that and the end of the previous chapter, kind of referring to some kind of a dance, this suggests that what might be happening right now is she's dancing for him. And, she, and he now is complimenting her and her movements. Maybe that's why he kind of starts at her feet. Now think about this for just a minute. She was giving the gift of a dance to her husband. And, you know, it was probably not easy for her to do this. I'm sure she was self-conscious about things. Uh, but she was fully willing to give this gift to her husband because her husband had very expressively made her feel secure in his love. He had done all the work ahead of time to make her feel, I love you and I'm going to fight for this and I am, I am totally focused on you. And that's what you see throughout this chapter. He's giving the gift. He's giving now the gift of expressiveness and encouragement to his wife. And this is something that's hard for some men and, uh, and it's certainly not easy for any of us to do on a regular basis. We, uh, we get sidetracked, we get busy, whatever, and uh, men, women, the same thing, to provide encouragement and expressive uh, words to our spouse. But as hard as it may be, he's doing it. And that's what we should be doing. And remember, this is probably years into their marriage. So that tells us as the years go on, it's even more important to express how beautiful our wife is to us. And he says to her, how beautiful are thy feet with shoes or in sandals. <clears throat> Sandaled feet back then were considered, uh, considered particularly attractive. And uh, I like what Danny Aiken says here about this. He said, gentlemen, notice something. He noticed her shoes. He noticed her shoes. Women love that. So, well, and then after he sees that, he compliments her there. He starts to begin complimenting her inward character. He calls her, oh, prince's daughter. Now, the meaning is not necessarily that she's of royal birth. We know that. But rather, he's saying, you're a gracious and noble person. Then he goes back to her body again. The joints of thy thighs, he says, uh, he, he refers to, and it's probably more meaning the curves of her hips is what that uh, more specifically might be. Verse 2, thy navel is like a round goblet which wanteth not liquor. Thy belly is like an heap of wheat set about with lilies. I probably better clarify this one before you go writing this poem to your wife. But uh, first of all, he talks about her navel. Now, this is probably referring to the most intimate part of her body. And he says, it, which wanteth not liquor. Liquor, the word in Hebrew mezeg, is, is, means mixed wine. Now, back then, wine was usually diluted with water to lessen the intoxicating powers. But that's not what he's meaning here. This word, mezeg, is actually described as um, a, a wine that's blended with spices and liquors to heighten the taste and the intoxicating effect. Solomon was saying that this part of your body had a, has a strong intoxicating effect on me. On their wedding night, Solomon, remember, likened the sexual area of her body to a garden, and now he's basically describing it as a feast. And again, this is very intimate. The intimacy has deepened over the years. 
Then he says, thy belly is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. <laughs> I guess the stomach, if you look at uh, a bundled, uh, some bundled wheat, there is sort of the visual relation of a bundle of wheat there. But probably the primary point is figurative. He's saying uh, how they viewed wheat back then. Wheat was the main staple of the Israelite meal. So just as uh, wheat satisfied their physical hunger, he's saying, you satisfy my hungers. As one commentator said, she is wheat and wine, food and drink. She nourishes and satisfies him as he sought to nourish and satisfy her. So he's telling his wife, this man here, this husband, is telling his wife of many years in a beautiful moment that they're sharing together that you satisfy me completely. And a wife loves to hear that, and she needs to hear that. Verse 3, thy two breasts are like young rows that are twins. Well, here we go again with the two breasts like young rows. Innocent and gentle twin deers are deer. This is the same metaphor he gave on the wedding night. And perhaps this is also a way of saying, again, after all these years, your body hasn't lost any of its desire for me. Verse 4, thy neck is as a tower of ivory. Thine eyes are like the fish pools in Heshbon by the gate of beth Thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. That sounds like a funky-looking woman here, but that's not what it's meaning. The neck uh, is like the tower of ivory. And, of course, what he means by that is uh, she is elegant and beautiful. Uh, Eyes like pools, speaking of that still, deep calmness when he looks into her eyes. You know, specifically, the pools of Heshbon were were a place in the heart of a busy city, that people could go for respite, for calm, for peace. So he was saying, dear wife, no matter how hectic my life is, I find peace and I find calm in your eyes. I'm all, you're a place of peace for me. And then the nose is as the Tower of Lebanon, which looketh toward Damascus. Uh, d- don't try that one at home. <laughs> but if you're looking out, I mean, if you think about this, if you're looking out across the horizon... And all you see is for miles is just a flat, boring landscape. Then a tower that kind of rises in that, in, that, uh, in that landscape would add something aesthetically pleasing. I think what he's saying here is that your facial features have a beautiful symmetry. Everything complements each other. You're beautiful to look at. Verse 5, thine head upon thee is like Carmel, and the hair of thine head like purple. The king is held in the galleries. That's a beautiful statement. He says, her head crowns you as Mount Carmel majestically crowns the land of Israel. But then what does this purple hair mean? Well, he, he, first of all, he says it's like purple. And probably he's indicating how the shimmer of her hair hit the light as she moved. And, um, or maybe that her hair is it's royal, it's queen-like, it's fit for a king. And then he says, a, a powerful little statement, he says, the king is held in galleries. In other words, you have captivated the king with your beauty. The word for held is a very strong Hebrew word. It means to be bound, captured, held. It means to be captive or imprisoned. It's having absolute authority over someone. You know, interestingly, similar language like this appears in ancient Egyptian love songs. Uh, here's one that, was, that they found. 
uh, what it says, with her hair, she throws lassos at me. With her eyes, she catches me. With her necklace, she entangles me. And with her seal ring, she brands me. And that was back in uh, the, the ancient Egyptian days. This is mushy stuff that Solomon is saying, okay? I am a prisoner of love, and you are my captor. You have me held. But this is how we should be as husbands and wives. We, we should be captured by our mate. Even after years of marriage, our focus should be so on each other. I am held. I am captured in galleries. We, there is no need to look outside of our marriage for anything else. You are hell, you hold me. And this requires us to just keep looking back at our mate, keep looking back at our mate, keep desiring them. Verse six, how fair and how pleasant thou art, O love, for delights. Once again, he calls his wife fair. This word again means beautiful. Then he uses the word pleasant. Then he he says, uh, O love. And then he uses the word delightful. You hear how he's speaking to her? All those beautiful, very caring, heartfelt words. Uh, This man has been married to this woman for years, but he's pouring out words that are uh, filled with deep feelings. The years have not faded his love. They've only increased in depth. He means these words. Now there's an important point here. I don't think, as married couples, that we can praise our mate too much. I've... or too often. You know, I, I've never come across that problem. Someone has never come into the office and said, like, I have a problem. <laughs> my, my husband says too many nice things about me. And I'm sick of it. I'm, I'm done with it. He just constantly, constantly, constantly is telling me how beautiful I am, and I, I can't take it anymore. I, by the way, I've, never al- I've also never had a husband come in and say my wife praises me and respects me and honors me way too much. This is, this is getting ridiculous. You, I just, that's just something you don't hear. A- another thing is this. It reminds me how important it is to study our spouse, to keep thinking about them, to put our eyes toward them and really think about who they are and what they are and what they mean to us and find ways to praise them often. These are the things that make uh, romance deepen over the years. It may not be that instinct of romance in the early years where it's just, you know, just you're just doing whatever comes to your brain. Now it's more thoughtful. It means more. You're thinking. Uh, there's, you're finding ways that you can praise each other. And you're doing it often. This is what builds a deep, deep romance. Now we're not done yet. There's more intimate language here. You're saying, man, Pastor Luke, hurry up. This is, this is getting hot in here. I understand. Verse seven, this is thy stature. Thy stature is like to a palm tree, and thy breasts to clusters of grapes. You know, maybe she has stopped dancing now, and she's just standing there like an elegant palm tree, and he says, thy breasts are like grapes. Now, the word grapes, if you'll see in your King James Version, is added by the translators. It's in italics. Probably the word should be dates. You're like a cluster of dates, which is on the top of palm trees. Verse 8, I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of the bows thereof, Now also thy breasts shall be like clusters of the vine and the smell of thy nose like apples. Verse nine, and the roof of thy mouth like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. Now I'm not gonna go into all the details here, but I think it's pretty obvious what's going on. 
These are images of lovemaking. And again, if you compare that to chapter 4 and the wedding night, you see an increased freedom and an openness. Uh, Craig Glickman, a, a scholar here, and he's, he, I think he expresses it best. He says, remember, on the wedding night, there was the almost formal request and acceptance in the imagery of the garden. I opened my garden. He, he asked to come into the garden. But, but notice how much freer the couple is with one another. It's not a, it's not a loss of sacredness, but rather a growth in familiarity. This is a different mood from the delicate formality of their wedding night. Now it's interesting that every time someone does a study on sexual satisfaction in people, guess who always scores the highest? I mean literally, pretty much every study I've ever seen. It's not the singles out there living the party life. You know who always scores the highest in sexual satisfaction? It is the people who are trying to follow God's word. Now, one recent study, here's, I'm going to give you a quote. This is a Wheatley Institution study back in 2020, and there, there's another one I could quote from 2022 as well. But here's, here's what this study said. Women in highly religious relationships, that is couples who pray together, read scripture at home, and attend church, etc., were twice as likely as their secular peers to say they were satisfied with their sexual relationship. And the men in these couples were fully four times as likely to report being sexually satisfied as men in relationships with no religious activity. See, the husband and wife in Song of Solomon, and those studies go on and on and on every time. It's people who are committed to doing this God's way inside uh, the, the fireplace, inside the, the, the design of God. It's more satisfying. And the husband and wife in Song of Solomon here would say, duh, we don't need a study to tell us that. <laughs> look, look what's going on here. And there is every reason, there is every reason for all of us to follow God's way of doing things. Every reason. Why wouldn't we do this uh, God's way? He has just described his wife in all this beautiful language, and now it's her turn. She now begins to speak in verse 10. She says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Notice the deepening of her security here. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Uh, this is interesting because she has been saying this kind of a statement already a couple times, but now it's changed slightly. See, previously in a couple verses she has said, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. But now it's changed. It's I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I would say that, that this now is a statement of deeper security because now she really believes that she is the desire of his heart. She used to say, you're mine, but now she's saying, I know it. Your desire is all for me. She's deeply secure in their love. She senses from her husband a full, uh, just a full desire. And in 1 Peter, God says to Husbands, specifically here, dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Knowledge. And this is, I think, a very good piece of knowledge that, that we as husbands need to have. Your wife needs to believe. She needs to, be fully, she needs to be fully aware that your desire is for her and her alone. And this is why you need to give her the gift of expressiveness, the gift of words, 
the gift of letting her know and, that you, and assuring her of your affection and your love. There's something else that's interesting here. On their wedding night, Solomon, uh, the, the husband, describes seven different characteristics of his wife. Now, years later, guess how many we find here in chapter 7? Ten. He increased. He knows her better. He, 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 he's deep, more deeply romantic. He feels, uh, and he's been studying her, and there's a deepness there. By the way, do you see all the pet names along the way? Beloved, my love, prince's daughter. There is nothing uh, that you see in here of cold thoughtlessness. You know, the way that, unfortunately, that many couples begin to speak to each other over the years of marriage. Just a, a, a coldness. Um, no, you don't see that. There's a continuous kindness and courteous speech. I've told you before, I, I, I think, I've definitely told several marriage groups and confessed my own sins, but early on in our marriage, I remember calling home one time, and this is back in the old days when we used to have answering machines at home. Remember answering machines? Anyway, answering machines. I c- called home, it was early in our marriage already, a few years maybe, and um, I called home to talk to my wife and leave her some information, and so I just told her whatever the information was. And when I got home, she wasn't home yet, and so I Beep, you know, listen to the answer, listen to the messages, and so I heard my own voice talking to my wife. And when I heard that and the tone of my voice, I was, I felt sick. <laughs> I was like, that's how I sound? That's not what I meant to so- sound like. That's certainly not how I feel in my heart, but how it came out was harsh and, and like I didn't even love her. It's amazing to me how we will brighten up and our tone will be so much better with, with the people out in the world and that we don't know and don't love necessarily, like, but the person that we love the most in the world, our tone begins to get more harsh. You don't see that. You don't see that in here. You see a kindness. You see a tenderness. You see the words in such a sweet tone. I think, I think honestly, this is one of the keys to a treasured romance a deepening romance that happens over the years. There has to be a, a forcing of your mind and your heart to just go sweeter and sweeter. W- one quick spiritual picture here that I want to bring out too, and that is that Christ always uses language that builds up and provides security for his bride. You never get the idea in Scripture that God hates us or that he wants to walk away from us. Never. In fact, he even says, Jesus even says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And what security that provides in us as his bride. And what security that provides when we speak like that to our spouse. Now back to our chapter here. The wife is still speaking. In verse 11, she says, Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Look at this gal. She is initiating. Again, She is initiating. She is initiating a special rendezvous for the two of them. She's saying, come on, let's get out of town. Let's go out into the fields. Let's go out into, let's lodge in the villages. Let's go focus on our love for each other. Married couples, uh, make sure you do this. The kids, 
will survive if, while you're gone for a little getaways, okay? They might be starving and half dead by the time you get back, but, they'll, but you'll bring them back to life, don't worry. You, we need to get away as, as husbands and wives. We need to get away and focus on each other. Couples that have been married for a while need to regularly lodge in the villages. And those are the things that help to build deeper romance. She continues, verse 12, Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grape appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee my loves. Remember, this girl's a country girl. Remember, way back in the early chapters, she, she worked out in the fields and that's where she's from. She wants to take a little palace city boy here out to the country where it would be a romantic time for them. And she wants to see how their love has increased. She says, there, out of there, I will give you my loves. You see an aggressiveness here from her that you haven't seen before. Again, it's a sign that she is secure in their marital love. I'm going to bring another comment here that I think is really good. This is by David Guzik, and he says, Sexual intimacy was not understood to be the husband's pleasure and the wife's duty. There is a spirit throughout the Song of Solomon that shows how good marital love can be for both partners. Song of Solomon teaches that true freedom does not come by someone's being liberated from marriage. The truth is that genuine liberation comes in marriage. Marriage is a secure hedge that protects love as it grows. As love is nurtured, it produces freedom and fulfillment. That is so true. And then she gives a little more to entice him. Verse 13, the mandrakes give a smell and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. The mandrakes, or the love apple as it was known, is a pungently fragrant plant that's forever long been uh, considered an aphrodisiac. And it's something that encourages fertility. You see the mandrakes popping up in Scripture in several places. But notice, she also says that uh, I have all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old. This is all just language describing the desire that she has for him, to be with him. Oh, I have all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old. She's being creative. And she's making an effort to increase their enjoyment together. She's making an effort. She wants to do things new and old, and this is important for husband and wife. We're going to keep on working at, at keeping the fire going. We keep putting an effort to keep our romance alive, to keep love alive, to keep a focus on each other. This is what God intended. So what did we learn today? And I'm going to put this up here for us. What did we learn today from this chapter? Number one, a husband must put effort into being expressive, thoughtful, and affectionate. Expressive, thoughtful, and affectionate. Our words, uh, let, let, those, let those feelings that you have for your wife come out. And if you need to force yourself to start thinking about it and studying it and turn your heart toward her, do it. And be thoughtful and be affectionate. A wife must put forth effort in being responsive, aggressive, and creative. I think you see that in this passage. And it will be, both of these, the husband is giving the gift of expressiveness and thoughtfulness and affection 
It may not come natural to give all of that, but he's giving her a gift. And then a wife is giving him a gift. It may not be natural, but he's, she's giving him a gift of responsiveness and aggressiveness and creativeness. And this, this just leads then to a marriage that deepens. It deepens in security, it deepens in excitement, and it deepens in intimacy. This is, God, this is God's intention. This is the way God wants this thing to go. As the years go on, uh, there is no expiration date on God's commands for a husband and God's commands for a wife. He wants this thing to keep going deeper and love to just keep uh, going more and more. You know, this week, uh, I read something very sad. It was a statement by Shaquille O'Neal, um, the big, gigantic basketball player. And he's been open recently about the mistakes that he made early on in his marriage as a husband and as a father. But here's, here were his exact words. He said, I made a lot of dumb mistakes to where I lost my family and didn't have anyone. He says, I was an idiot. I lost my whole family. I'm in a 100,000 square foot house by myself. Now, according to a friend, Shaq, talked to this friend later, and here's what he said to him. He said, the point I was trying to make is that I want other people to learn from the mistakes that I've made. You get married, you make vows, and you should be thankful for what you have. Stay with it. I want people, especially those in the public eye, to learn from me. How sad. How sad. You get married, you make vows, you should be thankful for what you have. He's right. I mean, he's right. He learned the hard way. God has given you a gift. Don't throw it away. In fact, invest in it more and more and more and more as the years go on. Imagine how much better things would have been for him and for so many if they would just follow God's word. Listen, everybody, just keep working at this great gift that God calls marriage. Refocus, reconnect, and this will re-energize your marriage. Lord, I thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.